Shabbat Shalom, everyone. We are going to do something unprecedented today. We're going to do something that none of you possibly thought I was capable of. Unimaginable, unthinkable. We are going to cross the finish line of this series today. Yes. Uh, As I mentioned last week, for me, the epistle to the Hebrews This for me is very, very special. And without exaggeration, I'm just going to tell you, this is without question one of the most important documents that has ever existed in the history of the world. And I'm not sensationalizing it. That's not hyperbole. I'm being quite literal. This is a theological masterpiece. I am in awe at this thing. The way the writer has navigated, it tells me we're not dealing with simply the heart, the, 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 the thoughts and the emotions of a man. We're dealing with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that's how profound this book is, to be able to go through and articulate the things that he does in the way that he does it, revealing to us Yeshua, his deistic nature, that he holds all things together by the word of his power and that, you know, the host of heaven are to worship him and that he himself is called God and to move from that and to start talking about things like the fact that he is the new Cohen Gadol. It's totally, completely radical. And to be able to navigate those waters, man, you have to have the Holy Spirit. To be able to talk about what the new covenant is and compare it and contrast it to the old and actually bring it down, dumb it down for me so that I can understand it like a child is an incredible thing. And yet he does this and he does it, seems to do it with just beautiful ease. He seems to be able to take this contrast of, or, you know, what people would appear to be contrasted as the law and grace And weave these two concepts together, understanding there is a relationship that exists. Expressing the beauty of what grace really is and expressing also the importance of the Torah, the law of God. And so it's one of the most valuable pieces of literature you'll ever hold, you'll ever read. I really mean that. And so with that said, I want to break in. Let's attempt and begin to cross the finish line here. We're going to pick it up in verse 14, and this is what we read. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Now, what is the writer talking about here? For here we have no continuing city. What city is he referring to? Yerushalayim, Jerusalem. But he's contrasting the earthly Jerusalem to that of the heavenly. He's making a stark contrast here. Now, again, and we've talked about this, but if you put this statement, in its historical context, then it becomes much more radical. In the sense, here you have a Jew writing to Jewish believers, telling them, and keep in mind, while he's writing this, the temple is functioning. We have the priesthood fulfilling their duties in service. They're sacrificing the animals. Blood is getting applied to the altar. They're, they're lighting the menorah. They're going in with the table of the showbread, and, and, and they're burning incense on the altar. They're bringing the blood in on Yom Kippur. All of these things are happening. People are going up to the temple. Jerusalem is robust. It's the very symbol of relationship for Israel and God. It's the symbol. And yet this writer 
comes out with this statement, yet here we have no continuing city. We absolutely, it's radical. And again, I, I, I tell you that in the first century, in, in a proper context, this could get you stoned. Talk like this did not go well for Jeremiah, who came and brought the holy word of God, just was expressing what God was trying to tell his people. It was a message of grace. And you know what they did? They said, no, you hate us. You hate our city. You deserve to die. And the apostle Paul even goes even further in his description by calling Yerushalayim Hagar, the bondservant who we knew. What, what's, what do we know about? She was cast out with her son. So when you start talking about the earthly Jerusalem at that level, yes, that could get you stoned. But the free woman, meaning Sarah, one gives birth to this miracle child. That is the new Jerusalem. That's what we're a part of. And that is what the writer is getting into here. Now, I want to bring further clarity to this passage because sometimes, you know, you go verse by verse, you can kind of lose the broader context. So I want to go back to last week and I want to put verse 13 back up here. And this is what the writer says. Therefore, let us go forth to him, Yeshua, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Why are we going to go outside? Why? Because we're going to go after him for here. We have no continuing city. In other words, abandoned ship. Abandoned ship. And this is why Yeshua, go back to John 4, and as he's talking to the Samaritan woman, woman, I tell you, the hour's coming and now already is. You will neither on this mountain, on Mount Gerizim, nor in Yerushalayim, worship the Father. For the ones that are going to go and worship him are going to worship him in spirit and truth. And it's amazing. So it's abandoned ship on one serious level. But guess what? You're not abandoning God. You're going out to Yeshua outside the camp. You're running to him. Absolutely amazing. Going back, just to reiterate, Hebrews eleven nine. listen to what the writer says. By faith, Abraham dwelt in the land of promise, what? As in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Look at that. As a foreign, I mean, he is dwelling in the land of, this is the land that God promised him. You would live normally as a citizen. This is my land, and yet he doesn't. Neither did Isaac, neither did Jacob, and neither did David. Read the Psalms. David said to the Lord, I'm a stranger with you as my forefathers were. They knew something. And Abraham, what he knew is that I'm not going to plant my flag in the dirt of the earth because what God promised me transcends what I'm seeing. It transcends it goes way beyond. He knew what he was promised was eternal. And remember, Abraham knew Yeshua. He knew Yeshua, which is why the writer goes on and says, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That's what Abraham was waiting for. That's why he dwelt as a foreigner, as a stranger. He didn't get comfortable. If you've ever been you know, out of the country, for the most part, if you're going to a different country, it's uncomfortable because you're not a citizen of that country. You're not comfortable in your own skin. This is where Abraham is. This is where Isaac was. This is where David was. This is where the first century Messianic Jews are. They are not planting their flag in the dirt of earth. And so 
Here we see, therefore, let us go forth to Yeshua outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. There's one specific thing I say for today. I didn't cover last week intentionally. And that is this. Let us go forth to him outside the camp. This is so pivotal to understanding the broader context. Now, one of the things we talked about last week was the fact that, okay, on Yom Kippur, you had the bull being sacrificed for the priest, you have the goat for the people, and that blood was brought into the Holy of Holies, and then what happened to those animals? They were carried outside the camp and completely consumed. And we know these are representative of Yeshua giving his life. But there is another aspect here that the writer is conveying. Again, remember the old Jewish proverb, the Maaseh Avot Simon Lebanim. The deeds of the fathers, they're a sign, they're prophecy for the children. In other words, when the rabbis read the Torah, they don't read it simply as history. They read it as this is going to happen again. This is prophecy. We need to pay attention to these stories. We need to commit them to memory because it's going to happen again. It's foretelling us of what is to come. Well, what I'm telling you is when their writer said this, there's no question. The Messianic Jews in the first century, oh, it rung their bell. And it rung their bell with Moshe. And what do I mean? Well, let me take you there and you'll understand this better. We read in Exodus 33, verse 7, Moshe took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it, oh, the, this is called the Ohel Moed, the tabernacle of meeting, or you would say the tent of meeting, Ohel is tent. This is the tent of meeting. There's two things to mention here that are important. Number one, Moses, Moshe, is going outside the camp. And then his own personal residence, his own place is called the Ohel Moed. Why is that important to me? Because that's what the tabernacle is called several times within the Torah. And so I've gotten this question because people get confused. I don't understand this. Is this talking about the actual tabernacle? But it looks like it's talking about Moses' personal tent. Listen to me carefully. This is explicit. This is talking about Moses' private tent. It's called the Ohel Moed, and the actual tabernacle, the Mishkan, was called the Ohel Moed. You see, when God does stuff like this, it's supposed to stop you dead in your tracks because something, he is conveying something that forces you, stops you in your tracks to say, I, I got to understand this. What is going on? Clearly, there is something deeply prophetic, and there is. And the fact that he set it up outside the camp. Now, let's go back to Deuteronomy 18. And let's think about this for a moment. Moses tells the children of Israel, the Lord is going to raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. And him you shall hear. And so that's interesting because the writer of Hebrews has already drawn a parallel between Yeshua and Moses going back to chapter 3. And so Moshe's life is very important to me. And it's the Maaseh of Otsiman Lebanim. Okay, this is, it's prophetic in nature. And it's telling us there's, there's something being revealed to us. Well, let's see what this is as we continue. We finish out the passage. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord, what did they do? They went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. In other words, They went to him outside the camp. They went to Moses. You can't make this stuff up. This is exactly what the writer of Hebrews 
is telling his first century Jewish brethren to do in regard to the prophet like unto Moses. Now this gets better because as we go to the Targums on this very passage, we're gonna read the same passage, but in the Aramaic Targums, listen to this. But the tabernacle Moshe took away from thence and spread it without the camp and removed it from the camp of the people to the distance of 2,000 cubits. Mind-blowing. Why is this mind-blowing? Because do you know that was the actual, the exact dimensions that you were to prescribe to stay away from the Ark of the Covenant? It's, you think of it as the, the holy distancing. Think of it that way, holy distancing, okay? And, and this is the exact, and this is being applied to Moshe's Ohel Moed. You, this is incredible. But then it goes on and says this. And it was called the tabernacle of the house of instruction, the house of Torah, the house of learning. You know, one thing I could tell you is the Jews are waiting, Orthodox Jews, they're waiting on pins and needles to be taught by the Messiah. They want the Messiah to teach them Torah. Amazing. And in the, going back to the wilderness, all those who were seeking instruction in Israel, where did they go? They went to Moshe outside the camp to learn. That's where they went. Continuing, we read this. And it was that when anyone turned by repentance... With a true heart before the Lord, he went forth to the tabernacle of the house of instruction that was without the camp, listen to this, to confess and pray for the pardon of his sins and praying he was forgiven. Absolutely incredible. So they're not just going to learn Torah. They're not going outside the camp to Moshe. They're going out to get re- forgiven, to confess their sins and get forgiven. That's what the writer is confessing here. This is profound, this is deep. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp bearing his approach because guess what? Here we have no continuing city. A Jew's life in the first century flipped upside down, rocked by the implementation of this Brit Hadashah, this new covenant, all based on Yeshua, where the master Yeshua comes in and takes over the place, the role of mediator. He comes in and takes over the role of the Kohen Gadol. Comes and takes over kingship. I mean, this is incredible. What he did, yes, he flipped the world upside down. And I'm gonna tell you, it wasn't just our writer who understood this. It wasn't just the apostle Paul that understood this. We find that the Messianic Jews, okay, so at the birth of the church, as the church is beginning to grow, and it was explicitly Messianic Jews. It was Gentiles were not even a part of this equation. And this is important to note. We see this early on in the book of Acts. How did they respond? It's amazing. Let me give you an example how they responded. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Yeshua and great grace was upon them all. Verse 34, listen to this. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and they laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each one as had need. Mind-blowing. Do you understand? They're, they're acting like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, you got to understand, they're selling their lands. Well, wait a second, that's their inheritance. 
They're selling the houses. Do you remember what the Torah prophesied? Hey, I'm going to bring you into a land. A vineyards you didn't plant, a wells you did not dig, houses which you did not build, and you will inherit. And that was their inheritance in coming into this physical land. And yet, you know, you have first century Messianic Jews selling everything, literally on the earth. And you, you might say, well, Daniel, you know, there's, there's kind of a loophole to that because, you, of course, you have the Jubilee. They'll, they'll get it back so they can sell it now. That is not the context of what's being expressed here. In fact, I could take it a step further that if, if you read Leviticus 25, you know that if you sold a house within a, a, a walled city, and you didn't redeem it in one year, you never get it back, Jubilee or not. You see the hearts of these men, these Messianic Jews? They have left the earth. There's nothing here for them. They want to go home and be with Yeshua. That's all they want. I'm going to tell you, for us, that mindset's going to get easier and easier as we see this world and what is unfolding in this world. And with the Antichrist spreading out all over the place with his evil tentacles, doing what we are painfully have to watch him do. This is going to become easier and easier uh, for you. Continuing on, verse 15, the writer goes on, Therefore, by Yeshua, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. It's interesting that the writer moves on to instruct his Jewish brethren, hey, you're to go out of the camp, go to Yeshua, and the first thing he commands them to do is interesting, sacrifice, but not animals. Bring the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Now, there's a few things that you ought to know about the sacrifice of thanksgiving. If you go to the Torah in Leviticus chapter 7, You'll notice it's, there's a section there. It's called Ha Shalem. Uh, uh, shalem. You, de- you deal with the peace offerings, okay? The Shalem. And in the Shalem, these peace offerings, or Ha Shalemim, okay? These peace offerings, there are three ways to offer a peace offering. You have a vow, you have because, just because, and then you have the first one that's listed, which is known as the Todah. And Todah is thank you. I mean, you could say this in Israel today, but this is the thanksgiving offering. Now, what I want you to understand is that the reason someone would offer a Todah, the reason they would bring thanks to the Lord, and the reason is this, it would, be, it would have to do with something, I, the Lord could have granted them favor and success in regard to whether it's a journey or on some situation, or they were delivered, They were set free. They were spared. Let's just say that somebody was on their deathbed. They were bedridden. They were going to die. They're going to check out. But all of a sudden, they had a miraculous recovery. That person would come and offer this shalem. They would come and offer a todah, a thanksgiving offering, because they are thankful for God, for sparing them, for delivering them. And I'm going to tell you right now, I can think of no better way, for no better reason, to bring a todah to the Lord than for him sending his son. I mean, because every single one of us have been condemned to death. That's our sense. We've been, we, every one of us have been given a death sentence. Every one of us have regret and we have despair because of what we've done. And when the truth comes in, and man, does it cast light on the darkness. But because of Yeshua, there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in him, right? That's a beautiful thing. 
And so we have, as believers, we have this beautiful cause. We need to go to him outside the camp. We need to bring the sacrifice of thanksgiving. He's earned it. He is worthy. We need to glorify him in that. Something else I want to point out about the shalem or the todah is this. And when you offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, offer it of your own free will. Now, this is fascinating to me, and I'll tell you why. As you look at going back to the Exodus and they they come into the wilderness, the children of Israel are instructed, hey, you need to build a tabernacle. And the Lord shows Moses all the dimensions and everything that needs to be done. How did it, where did they get the material to build this tabernacle, the very symbol of the relationship, the very thing that will keep them in relationship with the Lord? Where did they get all this stuff? And the answer is from all of Israel who had a willing heart. They came and brought all these, what you would call sacrifices. They brought all the materials needed, the gold and the silver and the blue and the purple and the scarlet, all the thread, all this beautiful stuff. They did it out of their own free will. And what's amazing is, is they were building the kingdom of God in that capacity. It's such an awesome concept. This is what we do when we embrace the Todah. This is what we do when we come to bring thanksgiving for what Yeshua has done. We are building the kingdom of God. Nay, I say, as Israel in the wilderness, when they built that tabernacle, they were connecting directly to God. This is the power of the Todah. It's the power of the thanksgiving offering. Psalm 107, I love this. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And you guys already know how many times have I taught on this. There is power in this statement. There is power when you embrace it and you act it out. When these words come upon your lips, Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His mercy endures forever. This is why Jehoshaphat put the singers first. Those in worship, he put the worshipers first. The army's behind them. And they go out, uh, go out literally saying, give thanks to the Lord. His mercy endures forever. This is what they say. And the enemy was routed. The enemy fell down because of the praise. And what do we know about the praise? The Lord inhabits the praises of his people. So there is an incredible connection that happens when we go, we are connected to power. And guess what? The Lord loves it. This warms us up. We are saying things that he wants to hear from his creation. And you think about the, the, the reality, you think about marriage too. And I was thinking about this as coming up, thinking about the concept of marriage and that how marriage, when it's operating successfully and love is firing on all cylinders, it's because the spouses are saying the things that need to be said to the other spouse that minister to them, that build them up, that strengthen them, that make you feel good. So husbands, you know, when your wife comes to you and, and say, how do you like my new haircut? That's a pivotal moment for you. That's pivotal. You're in the valley of decision, right? I mean, you have a rare opportunity. You can either connect with her in a, in a, in a very powerful way 
or you can totally separate. But I can tell you, I mean, safe to say, we, we, most of us, and I'll admit, I don't always say the right things. I don't always know the right things to say. But man, when we know the right things to say, you can melt the hearts of your wife. And the wives, if they know the things they can say to melt the hearts of their husband. We are given scriptural instruction on the things that melt the heart of God in a powerful way. If you're ever to remember, commit to memory any Hebrew ever, outside of Ve'ani Yadati Goali Chai, you should remember this. This Hebrew, it's so powerful. Okay, so Psalm 107, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord for he's good. His mercy endures forever. I'm going to show you the rest of this verse. One thing that I want to share with you is knowing the power that this verse possesses. Knowing this power. And seeing the landscape today. What do you think the enemy is going to try to shut down? Praise and worship. Because if we could just see for a moment, if we could see for that this has and what it does to demons and how it destroys and breaks down strongholds around our lives and other people's lives, we would fill our mouths with it all day long, right? You think of Psalm 113, from the rising of the sun, the Lord is to be praised. It's to be praised. And there's a reason it's equipping us for power. It's equipped for strength, for wisdom. All of these things come into play in a very, very mighty way. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of his enemies. Who is supposed to say, those who have been redeemed, and may I say, been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We are to give thanks to the Lord. Unlock that power. Unlock that. The Lord loves to be praised. Jumping to verse 22. Let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. This is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is conveying. As he said, telling, instructing his Jewish brethren, go out and offer the sacrifices of thanksgiving. This is what we're commanded. This is nothing new. This is not a personal opinion. This is something the prophets long ago we're telling the children of Israel to do. For example, Hosea 14.1. O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord and say to him. Monumentous time in scripture. Where you're literally being called. We know there's a call. Oh yes, come and repent. Embrace Teshuvah. Turn to the Lord. But here's what's fascinating about this. Take Words with you when you return to the Lord, say to him. I mean, how many times people have said, I don't know what to pray. Listen closely, because scripture is going to tell you exactly what the Lord wants to hear. And this is what we uh, read as we continue. Take away all iniquity, receive us graciously. So now you're coming with this brokenness before the Lord. And you're begging him and you're asking him. The Lord wants to hear this. Forgive my sins. 
And what's so amazing is after so many conversations and all these lies the enemy tells people, they literally are, are convinced that this is not what the Lord wants. He doesn't want to hear this. He doesn't want me to come and say this. This is exactly what he wants for you to come and confess your sins and to ask for his grace to fall upon you. And then it says this, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. Lord, if you have mercy on us, know what's going to follow. It's going to be glory. And what is Psalm 50 verse 15? It's the same structure. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. Oh, you should glorify me. Glorify me because that's what he wants. So when he brings, when he brings deliverance, he brings glory to himself. When he brings healing, he brings glory to himself. It's an awesome thing so that we can go forward and offer that sacrifice with our lips. I just think of, of, of David, right, in Psalm 51. You do not, uh, you didn't, or Psalm 40, you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. No, it is Psalm 56, 50, 51, 16. There you go. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, oh God, you will not despise. That's the sacrifice that the Lord is looking for. The sacrifice that we see is being called upon here in, uh, even in Hosea. One more passage, taking you to Jeremiah 33. The voice of joy, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride. The voice of those who will say, praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his mercy endures forever. And those, and does that sound familiar? We just, right? It sounds familiar. It's the exact same thing. The Lord is good, his mercy endures forever. This is the Hodul Adonai. Perfect. And then we read this, who will bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. Again, this is what the Lord wants. We are Psalm 100, verse 4. We're to enter into his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. In other words, as we're coming in, we need to know how the Lord wants us to approach him. Right? Again, going back to the marriage, there's specific ways that a husband should be approaching his wife. There's specific ways a wife should be approaching her husband. It's no different with Yeshua when we come in. We come in. That's why, you know, going back, if you've ever been through a community series, but we start off with song every Shabbat because we are to enter into his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. This is how he wants us coming in to meet him. He wants to come in to the praises of his people. Think of Yeshua as he's making his triumphal entry into Yerushalayim. He did so with what? The praises of the people. He was glorified. He was honored. There's power in that. There's power in that. Now, continuing. Verse 16. But do not forget to do good and to share. And so here we're in the closing portion, obviously. The writer is getting close to his exit here. And he wants to take the time to give another life-giving principle, take the time to tell him, hey, you need, do not forget this. It's like the Lord saying, remember the Shabbat to keep it holy. Well, remember to do good, to do, to share. And as we know, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God is to visit widows and orphans, to care for those who are in need. 
We are to labor intensely in doing good. And I like what the Apostle Paul says, who also, interestingly enough, in his closing to the Galatians, is doing the same thing the writer of Hebrews does here, but he says something specific that really adds a dimension to what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He says in Galatians 6, 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And that's a warning. You will reap what you sow. Again, the devil wants to come and tell you, no, you won't. You will surely not die. You can live like hell. It's fine. You said a prayer. You're going to inherit heaven. Sleep well. Verse 8. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. I'm going to tell you right now, you need to understand that when the writer says that, hey, do not forget to do good and to share, do you know you're going to be exhausted? You will be times that you're hanging by a thread and you say, I can't, I just can't, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I'm exhausted. I don't have anything like that's when you need to draw to your mind that I will reap if I do not lose heart. David tells us at the end of Psalm 27, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Unless Yeshua was my Lord and Savior, unless my eyes were affixed to him, I would have fell. I would not have stayed on the, on the road. I would not have stayed on the narrow and difficult path. This is the reality. But now the writer goes on and says this. He's on the sacrifice thing. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. He is pleased with doing good. He is pleased with you giving to those who have need. Psalm 4, 5 says, Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. A couple of things about this passage right off the bat that here's the structure of the faith. Some of you know what I'm talking about. There is the structure of the faith. It's, it's this formula that you find scattered throughout the word of God. Genesis to Revelation. You see it everywhere. And really based on that, that revelation, the dragon's enraged with the woman, goes to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of the Messiah, Yeshua. Those are people who are written in the Lamb's book of life. They keep the commandments. They confess Yeshua as Lord. That is exactly what is being said here. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness. What is righteousness? Psalm 119, 172. All your commandments are righteousness. All of your commandments. So we have that. And what? Put your trust in the Lord. Put your faith in Yeshua. The structure of the faith. This is what we need to do. So when you're walking, and, and, and Yeshua says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. When you're walking in that love, you're walking in a sacrificial love. You are literally, spiritually speaking, offering beautiful sacrifices. The apostle Peter throws his hat into the ring here. He says, coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a spiritual temple. Okay? A holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Messiah Yeshua. So it's, a, it's, it's amazing. We have all these Jewish believers in the first century. You have the writer of Hebrews. You have the apostle Paul. You have Peter talking about these kind of sacrifices, totally spiritual in nature. 
Things that refer to be obeying God. Things that refer to praising and giving thanksgiving. Things that refer to helping those in need. These are all spiritual sacrifices. These are the sacrifices we are called to bring to the Lord. Amen? So do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Obey those who rule over you. And be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. Now, just to reiterate, this passage is explicitly talking about church governance. And the context and what is said here, it plays out, so there's no debate. There's certainly times where Scripture talks about obeying the secular authority. This is specific. It's talking about the elders, the shepherds, the pastors, the teachers, these rabbis. This is what it's talking about. Obey those and who rule over abuse submissive. Why? They watch out for your souls. Now, it goes on and it says this. As those who must give an account, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. In other words, for the sheep, there's two sides of the coin here. For the sheep, you got to understand that saying, you know what, I need to trust the Lord. If he's established leadership, if he's established shepherds, you know what, I need to trust in that and know that however he treats me, however he leads this community, there will be a day of reckoning upon his head. Take solace in that reality. Whereas the flip side, guess what? The pastors, the shepherds, the teachers, the elders, they have to step back and go, oh, we're on the receiving end of this. We need to hear this. I, I, I think of James. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. I kid you not, this passage almost took me out of ministry. Early on in ministry. Because it, it weighed so heavy on me, I wanted to leave. I'm like, no, who in their right mind is, as you're looking at these lines to get into heaven, you say, hey, Lord, you just, I, a quick question. I want to get in the line that has the strictest judgment. Which line is that? Can, can I go into that line? Are you kidding me? I'm looking for the line that is literally drowning in grace. That's my line. And so this is my train of thought. It's like, I'd, I'd rather, not, I don't need to teach. I'd rather not be strict, have a stricter judgment upon me because I have enough fear of God knowing and I've read enough of the word to know that day when it comes, we are going to tremble. It's going to be terrifying for the world to see his awesome holiness. I don't want to be in the line with stricter judgment. And so I battled. I can tell you I battled. And even the devil trying to utilize this as an excuse for me. Yeah, this is why you, you need to leave ministry. And the problem is I'm caught in a rock in a hard place. When you know you have a call on your life, what happens when you don't fulfill that call? What line is that? It's not even there. That's the problem. So you see the dilemma. I don't want to be in this situation. This is what James is saying. You don't want to be in this position. You don't. I don't. I don't have a choice. I'm going to be obedient to the Lord. But so, I mean, this, you know, when the, when, the, when the writer is conveying what he's conveying, it weighs heavy on both sides of the coin. All right? Continuing on. He says, pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things, desiring to live honorably, but especially, but I, singular, catch that. He started out with plural, pray for us. But now he says, but I especially urge you to do this. Urge them to do what? 
to pray. He's in his closing, and something that he is consumed with right now, that he is captivated, he wants to convey this is important. You need to pray for us. Now, is the writer simply saying this because he likes to speak? I want to, you know, I just want to sound spiritual. And I'm going to speak Christianese for a time and just kind of pat them on the back. And, and we're going to talk about prayer because we know that's like a spiritual thing. You need to understand the reason the writer is asking for this because he believes in it. He is asking for prayer because he knows the power of prayer. He knows that doors can't, that can't be opened can be opened with prayer. People that need deliverance that otherwise could not be delivered, they need prayer. People that are afflicted by demons, where you, even the apostles can't get them out, they can't be cast out except by prayer and fasting. I think the Peter, in, what is it, Acts 12, he's in prison. But it said constant prayer was offered up for him. And they're still praying, and then Peter shows up the door. They're literally, their prayers are being answered as he's knocking at the door. Supernatural miracle. This guy is not asking for prayer because it sounds good or that this is just going to be a a nice little happy little ending. He's asking for it because he's desperate for it. He knows we need it. I need it. I need you guys praying for me. I, I value those prayers. That's the most important thing we can do for one another uh, in addition to meeting the needs. When there's a need, we need to meet those needs. But this is, this is so critical. But then he goes on and tells us why. Then he says this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. What does that mean? There's a lot of debate. This is why I asked the question. That I may be restored to you sooner. The, the concept or the idea of being restored suggests that you were taken. In other words, is this writer, has he been thrown in prison? It's possible many of the first century Jews were thrown into prison. I mean, they knew prison well. Peter, Paul, all of them. They knew the prisons. And so just looking at the historical landscape and looking at this, it's very possible. It's not definitive because he doesn't explicitly say this. This could simply mean I want to be restored to you because I'm taken away from you for a time. The Lord has me doing this, this, and that right now. But my heart, I really want to come back to you. It could be that, or it could be the former. And I think given the historical context and given what we're going to read in a little bit, I I think it's very possible that this is a prison uh, situation. Now, there's one more thing worth noting. And that is the fact that what we're looking on the screen right now, this is a very, very familiar structure to me. In other words, have you ever read the epistles of Paul? Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. In Paul's closings, in all of those, he's asking for prayer. It's pivotal. It's imperative that he receives that prayer. James, he does it in his closing, his little epistle. And But what he does is he commissions them, you guys need to pray for one another. You need to pray for one another so that we can be healed. You know, that's a huge aspect to healing. We need to be praying constantly, and we can't ever stop. And considering the, the atmosphere that we are peering into, that's this thick cloud of evil, we have to be in meditation all day long. I want to meditate all day long on the goodness and the richness. I want to praise the Lord Yeshua because I want to walk in that power. 
I want you to walk in that power. And so we just need to be praying for one another. I, I think of Psalm 122. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. And again, I've talked about this passage before. Jerusalem is a synecdoche for the people. It's not simply asking us to pray for dust. And so when Yeshua rolls in and he, in Matthew 23, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one whose stones the prophets are sent to her. How I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. We're talking about people. We're talking about Israel. We're talking about the body of Messiah. And we are to pray. Shalom doesn't just mean, oh, just have peace. It means wholeness. To be restored, to unify. To be in unity with one another. This is what we're praying for. It goes way beyond that. And so this is powerful. We got to pick up on these things. Now continuing on. Verse 20. Now may the God of peace. Who brought up our Lord Yeshua from the dead. That great shepherd of the sheep. Through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Make you complete in every good work. To do his will. Working in you what is pleasing in his sight through Messiah Yeshua, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 30, or 22. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in few words. Now, it's interesting. He said, I just writ, wrote to you in few words. You know, you, you look at the kind of the landscape. We have some larger epistles in the New Testament, but a lot of them are smaller. And yet this writer says, I've written to you in few words, suggesting this guy's got a lot on his heart. But what did he, he, he shared was all the instrumental points. And you go through this, it's a mammoth of an epistle. This thing, I mean, mind-blowing mammoth. Theologically speaking, mind-blowing. I mean, it's so incredible. And so he says, I've written to you in a few words. I just, I kind of chuckle at that. Uh, verse 23. Know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Now, it's interesting that the writer, who may or may not have been in prison, okay, and is asking to be restored to his Jewish brethren, uh, it's interesting that he mentions that in light of this passage, because now Timothy, we know, was in prison. And so the enemy was laying waste. I want to say something here, and this is a little off this, but I want to say something. When I read the book of Acts, and I read the growth of the church in the first century, when God moved in the most glorious power, it was a time when Satan vomited filth out of hell and came at them with everything he had. I'm going to tell you, he's coming after us right now with everything that he has, but I will also tell you, if we stand strong, we will live and we will experience the things that the apostles experienced through the power of the Holy Spirit. I am convinced. I know this to be true. And so it's an, no more of reading this as just, yeah, this is a great history book. This is your life. This is current events. This should be us today. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I really believe there's going to be some awesome radical believers that are going to start experiencing mind-blowing things, while at the same time they're getting attacked from every angle, every side. The enemy's trying to undermine them, lock them up in prisons, do whatever he can to shut 
the mouths of people that testify of Yeshua, that testify of his truth. I think of John 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. This is why we are going to be hated. If you want to go out and say abortion's wrong, they're going to foam at the mouth. Because you're testifying of truth. You're testifying of Yeshua. You're testifying of what's good. You want to talk about how gay marriage is not God's plan for marriage? They're absolutely going to go ballistic. It's because there's demonic spirits behind this. That's just a reality. And the other thing to think about in this, not a big deal theologically or anything, but this is interesting as you know, we began this series talking about how uh, early church history and church historians, and you can go back to part one and listen to the whole thing, but we talked about who wrote this epistle. Who did this? And, and really the consensus that I believe is safe, it's a safe consensus, is this is the mind of Paul, but it's the hand of Luke. Well, it's interesting the fact that the writer now brings Timothy to the table and that he's going to come with Timothy. Timothy was a known associate of Paul. There's no question about that this author, regardless, he knows Paul well. And if you go, if you just read this epistle, you read Hebrews, you have Paulinisms all over the place. I mean, it's saturated. And so you can see the unity here of the apostles. I mean, really, you can, you can see that. Moving to verse 24. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. And he closes it out. And so this is a, this, again, for me, it's a theological masterpiece. This is a game changer for us as believers today in Yeshua, who you really want to understand who Yeshua is. You want to understand what the new covenant really means and that it is a new covenant. It's not a renewed covenant. Man, you got to get into the epistle of Hebrews. One thing to close up this is many did not notice, but where's Henry? Henry, Henry was the only guy that noticed. There was one verse I missed in this series, and I'll be doggone if I close this without going back to it. it was this, and having a high priest over the house of God. Now you go back and you're like, I don't remember missing. Guess what? I don't either. Um, that makes two of us. I don't even know how it happened, but my trusted uh, Henry my good friend, he recognized it. He was like, you missed it. I said, oh, my goodness. I went back. I guess you're right. So just to close this out, now we can close this epistle. And we're going to close this with prayer. Abba, Father, we just give you praise and glory. Thank you, Father, for giving me a replacement mic uh, just to finish this out. And uh, thank you for giving me the strength. Uh, all glory belongs to you, Yeshua. Uh, it is through your mercy and strength that we get through a series like this. But it's the most gratifying thing to dig into your word and to teach it and to proclaim the truth of who you really are, Yeshua. And how necessary it is that we come to you and run to you outside the camp. That we go to you and you, we bring the correct sacrifices. And we bring forth a beautiful testimony that you are the Messiah. That you died for our sins and that you rose again, and you sit at the right hand of the Father. That is the hill we have to die on. When we die on that hill, we will be resurrected according to your great power when you come back.
a second time and merely speak the words as you spoke to Lazarus and told him, Lazarus, come forth. Couldn't deny it. The dead flesh that was dead because of sin couldn't reject the power of your word. And that gets me excited to know they can't kill us. He cannot kill us when the Lord will make us alive. And Lord Yeshua, we do, we ascribe all glory to you, honor and power for your faithfulness, for your dedication, because without you, we don't have anything. We don't have hope. And more than ever, we cling to you. Lord, I pray for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit on this community. Those that humble themselves, that have that humble and contrite spirit, that we know you will draw near to them. I pray that you pour out your spirit on men and women. That old men dream dreams, young men see visions. That prophecies come forth, Lord. That the gifts come forth. We pray for this nation. Lord, I've never seen this kind of evil in my life. And I've hardly read about it. Parts of the Bible, parts like Sodom and Gomorrah, the book of Enoch. I mean, what we are seeing today is just beyond what I could even conceive. And so we humble ourselves before you, Lord. We confess sin. We confess our failures. And we ask to be restored. And we ask to be strengthened. And we ask for strength of boldness. To not shrink back in the face of intimidation and evil. But to cling to you in love. And to continue to speak your truth. Because it is grace. There is hell coming. There is judgment coming. That the wicked will not escape. And we pray for these lost souls, Lord. They need to come into the kingdom. And I pray for a burden of those lost souls upon our hearts. Because we know it's your heart that you're not willing that any should perish. Put that heart in us. So that when we have, give us the urgency, Lord, to know there's not much time. And so we offer a prayer and praise of thanksgiving. Thank you for who you are and what you've done for us, what you've done for this community, the people you've brought in here, how you've worked in their lives. It's just an awesome thing to see. I want to take the time to, to pray. We have several people in this community that need healing. Think of Ida and her back. I think of Jeff who needs continued healing. I think of little Maxwell, uh, Joseph and Elizabeth Farah's granddaughter, who the last I was told this morning, she, she does have brain damage. and uh, But she is awake, and uh, she's very unhappy right now. She's not talking yet. But you're the God who spoke the world into existence. It's nothing for you to speak and say, I am willing to be healed. And what we testify to, Lord, is that the moment you speak those words, Yeshua, they will not return to you void. 
so we pray for those that are hurting in this community. There are people that are struggling with fear and anxiety. Lord, they need the strength of who you are, the reality of your truth living inside them. They need the Holy Spirit. And so we just pray for a real move of God in this place, and not because of our righteousness, not because of what we think we are in the kingdom or what we've done for you, Lord, for no other reason, but we remind you of who you are. You are the Lord, the Lord, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. That's what we testify. We just pray these things in the mighty name of Yeshua.